If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 112th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on today's episode, we're going down under. And we're going to Fremantle. And we're going to go to three different locations there, all of which were suggested by Jenny Lee Watt. And she also did most of the research on this. And Jenny Lee has done some tour guide work at these various locations. So we're getting firsthand knowledge here, which is very cool. Very, very cool indeed. Before we do that, we want to point you in the direction of our website, historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They could do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we did get some emails. We want to thank Kristen for sending your email to us. We're glad that we were able to make your day at work that was going bad that much better. Also, Erica Sock sent us an email letting us know that she's loving the show, that she'd never really been into history, but loves the way the two of us tell it, Denise, particularly because we throw in the spooky part. She said she would have done so much better in history class in school if she could have had the the spooky stuff. She would have definitely gotten an A. Wouldn't all of us have done better in history if it was more exciting? No doubt. And she happens to hail from California and gave us a couple of locations there for us to check out. And one of which is a theater in Ventura, California, where she actually had some friends who worked there that had some experiences. So we're definitely going to be sharing those in the future. We also heard from Melissa. Thanks so much for your emails and encouragement, Melissa. We definitely appreciate that. And she's one of our executive producers. And we just sent her out her rewards of a logo mug and a logo t-shirt. Very cool. And then Chris sent us an email. Just wanted to thank you ladies for your podcast. I'm one of what seems to be many people who found you through Bizarre States and have really been enjoying your podcast. I listened to the last 10 or so episodes and just today went back to start going through your older ones. Can't wait to follow your journey as you find your voices and hit your stride. And she told us to keep up the good work. And I told her, uh, yeah, we're a little rough at the beginning. (laughs) Well, one of us is a little rough and the other one is um, very, very, very bumpy. Which one of us? That is for you to decide. And 
then over on the History Ghost Bump fan page, we heard from Aharon Denrich. Hope I said that name right. Love your podcast. Heard about it through Bizarre States podcast. Very good stuff. And then he asked if we'd heard about a particular location in Maryland. It's very creepy. And we've had some requests to check out some places in Maryland. So we've definitely added this to the list. Thanks so much. On the Spectacular page, Stephen shared some pictures of a 113-year-old settlement that was abandoned with us. That was really cool to see yeah. all those old buildings there. Really cool pictures. And Anna of Proof Paranormal shared Fourth Ward Schoolhouse in Virginia City, Nevada. Very cool-looking building. And she said it was the inspiration for Phantom Manor at Disneyland Paris. Okay, well, we will have to do some comparison when we get a chance to go there, hopefully yeah. in the not-too-far future. Very cool. To think that a place in Virginia City inspired somewhere in Paris, that's pretty cool. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Elena. Hey, Elena. Or Elena. I'm not sure exactly which way that's said. Or Elena. Either way, welcome. Brandon. Hey, Brandon. Toby. Hi, Toby. And Annie, who's Emily's mom. And welcome, Annie, Emily's mom. All right, Denise, are you ready to go down to Fremantle? I absolutely am. We're going to be checking out a couple of jails and an asylum. So, wow. Jails, jails, and asylum. Yep. So, we're going to jail and the asylum. That's fantastic, Diane. Buckle up, everybody. <laughs> we're going to take you on a hell of a trip. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime Bonus Cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. The Moment in Oddity is by Bob Sherfield. Born in May 1814, Wilmer McLean of Virginia is known as the man of which the American Civil War, quote, started in his front yard and ended in his front parlor, end quote. When the opening engagement of the First Battle of Bull Run took place on July 21, 1861, Wilmer McLean's house, located in William County, just south of Washington, D.C., was being used as Confederate Brigadier General Beauregard's headquarters. As the general and his soldiers were preparing to have dinner, a cannonball ripped through the wall of the kitchen and landed in the fireplace. Of the event, General Beauregard noted in his diary, quote, A comical effect of this artillery fight was the destruction of the dinner of myself and staff by a federal shell that fell into the fireplace of my headquarters at the McLean House, end quote. This shot was part of the opening salvo of what would become the first battle of Bull Run. McLean had been a major in the Virginia militia, but at 47 had retired and was too old to return to active duty at the outbreak of the Civil War. So during the conflict, McLean worked as a sugar broker, providing the Confederate Army with this and other supplies run through Union blockades, whilst renting the 1,200-acre plantation to the Confederate forces, who converted the barn to a military hospital and then a detention center for Union soldiers. The Second Battle of Bull Run in 1862 left his property a shambles. The fact that he was living in an area of northern Virginia heavy with Union troops, whilst his commercial activities were mostly in southern Virginia, caused his businesses to suffer. This, coupled with a desire to protect his pregnant wife and family and avoid exposing them to any more war, led them in the spring of 1863 to move 120 miles south to a settlement centered around the Appomattox Courthouse. 
Wilmer McLean may have hoped that this move would be the end of his involvement with the war, but he would be wrong. In April 1865, as the war drew towards its conclusion, General Robert E. Lee was on the verge of surrendering to his Union counterpart, Ulysses Grant. In preparation for this, a messenger searching for a suitable location conversed with McLean, who offered the use of his own house. On Palm Sunday, April 9, 1865, Lee, resplendent in new uniform, sat down with a mud-spattered and travel-weary Grant in the parlor of the property and surrendered. Almost as soon as the ceremony was over, Union soldiers that were present began to buy the furniture that was in the parlor. The desk on which Grant drafted the surrender document ended up in the possession of a certain General G. Custer. By the end of the day, McLean's house had been nearly picked clean by souvenir hunters. The fact that the McLeans lived in two different houses that eventually marked the beginning and then the end of the Civil War certainly is odd. up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. <laughs> this Day in History And this day in history is brought to us by Jessica Bell. On this day, March 15th in 1813, John Snow, an English physician and epidemiologist, was born in York, England. Dr. Snow is known for being a leader in medical hygiene and for the adoption of anesthesia techniques. John Snow was one of the first physicians to study and calculate dosages for the use of ether and chloroform as surgical anesthetics allowing patients to undergo surgical and obstetric procedures without distress and pain they would otherwise experience. He designed the apparatus to safely administer ether to the patients and also designed a mask to administer chloroform. He personally administered chloroform to Queen Victoria when she gave birth to the last two of her nine children, Leopold and Beatrice, leading to wider public acceptance of obstetric anesthesia. Dr. Snow was also responsible for tracing the source of a cholera outbreak in London in 1854. Dr. Snow did not believe that cholera was an airborne disease, which was the theory at the time, and instead he examined a public water pump in London based on cholera outbreaks nearby. Once the pump was shut down, the cholera outbreak ceased. Upon further examination, it was then learned that the water pump had been dug only three feet from an old cesspit, which had begun to leak fecal bacteria. These findings then played a role which led to changes in the water and waste systems of London, which also led to similar changes in other cities, and a significant improvement in general public health around the world. History Goes Bump Podcast. Australia is a rugged land, and due to the fact that much of the country started as a series of penal colonies, it is no wonder that jails have become an integral part of its history. Fremantle is a major port city located in Western Australia, which is the biggest territory in Australia at 2,529,875 square kilometers, which equals out to 
976,790 square miles. Ginny Lee Watt is a tour guide in Fremantle, and she's going to take us on a journey to three key locations in Fremantle, Roundhouse, Fremantle Jail, and the Lunacy Asylum. There is more to these locations than just a long history in Australia. These locations all seem to have supernatural activity. Join us as we explore some of the highlights of Fremantle and Western Australia. The first inhabitants of Australia were the indigenous aboriginals, and they arrived around 40,000 to 60,000 years ago. The first recorded European to visit Western Australia was Dutch explorer Dirk Hartog, who landed on an island off Cape Inscription on October 25, 1616. That island came to be known as Dirk Hartog Island. The coastline of Western Australia is very hard to navigate, which is evidenced by the number of shipwrecks that dot the coastline. For this reason, not many explorers or colonists came to this area for the next 200 years. Western Australia was established as the Swan River Colony on May 2, 1829. It wasn't until January 1, 1901, that Western Australia became part of the Australian Federation. Western Australia is a little different than the rest of colonial Australia because the Swan River settlement was intended to be a convict-free settlement. The traditional owners of the land on which Fremantle now stands are the Wajuk Noongar people, so I do apologize if I did not say that correctly, who called the area Walyalup, which translates into the crying place or the place of crying. Fremantle is an important place for the Noongar people as it is a place of meeting, trading, and ceremonies. The roundhouse was the first permanent building erected in the Swan River Colony and is the oldest building in Western Australia. It was built in 1830 and opened in 1831 and is situated on a limestone hill known as Arthur Head. Huh, interesting material for that hill. Yeah, it's uh, limestone, which probably helps with some of the future references (laughs) that we're going to have. The roundhouse was used as a prison for colonial and indigenous prisoners until Fremantle Jail was constructed. It has 12 sides that gives it a rounded appearance, thus the name Roundhouse. It was used until 1886 to house prisoners. Later, it was a police station for the water police and eventually used for storage for the ports. In 1900, a ceremonial ball drop became a standard part of Roundhouse to help navigators know what time it was. Today, the ceremony is still conducted as a reenactment. The first person of European descent executed in Western Australia was executed at the Roundhouse. That prisoner was a 15-year-old boy named John Gavin. Gavin was a convict who was transported to Western Australia as a Parkhurst apprentice aboard the ship The Shepherd. The ship landed in October of 1843. Parkhurst apprentices were juvenile prisoners from the Parkhurst prison who had their prison term transported to either Australia or New Zealand between 1842 and 1852. On arrival, the prisoners were sent to be apprenticed for the term of their sentence. Gavin was tried and convicted of the murder of his employer's son, George Pollard, while he slept. Although Gavin confessed to the murder, he never gave a rational motive. Gavin was hung at public execution outside the roundhouse on the 6th of April in 1844. Because he was such a young man and didn't weigh a lot, it is said that the executioner had to weight his legs down with chains. A death mask was made and his brain studied before he was buried in the sand hills. Can you imagine executing a 15-year-old today? No, they wouldn't even consider it. Would never, ever happen. At least that's true of the United States. So some of our international listeners will have to let us know if that's the same in your countries. 
Well, I know most international countries don't even have a death penalty anymore. So to execute a 15-year-old would definitely not happen. One of the most noted prisoners of the Roundhouse is Yegan, who was an indigenous Australian warrior of the Noongar people. He played a key role in the early resistance against British settlement. Yegan is thought to have been in his mid-30s when the Swan River settlement began. For the first two years, the relationship between the settlers and the Noongar people was quite good. The Noongar people actually thought the settlers were the Janga, the return of spirits, and their descendants. It wasn't until the settlers started erecting fences to create farming and grazing land that destroyed the land used by the Noongar people as hunting grounds that they started to figure out that these people were not their ancestors. The Noongar people were denied access to areas which they had hunted for thousands of years and as a result had to resort to buying cattle and the like from the settlers to survive. The Noongar practice of fire stick farming where the bush was set alight not only to flush out game but also to encourage the germination of undergrowth to sustain the environment threatened the farming and housing of the settlers. I can only imagine these settlers when they see these Aboriginal people coming through with their torches and flames and just setting everything on fire. I would be a little bit worried, too. True, especially if you're on their land, because they might think they're coming to take it back. Exactly. Between 1831 and 1832, Yegan and his father led a number of resistance attacks against white settlers, which led the settlement to declare Yegan an outlaw and to offer a reward of 20 pounds for his capture. He managed to avoid capture until December 1832, and he was taken to the roundhouse. Yegan was sentenced to death because of the number of settlers who were killed during the resistance. A settler named Robert Lyon was able to save Yegan from death by arguing that he was simply defending his land, and thus he should be treated as a prisoner of war. As a form of punishment, Yegan and his men were sent to Karnak Island with John Septimus Rowe, who was a surveyor general of Western Australia. Rowe thought he could teach Yegan British customs and convert him to Christianity. The two men did, in fact, teach each other quite a bit about their individual customs. Roe learned the Noongar language during that time. Yegan and his men escaped back to the mainland after about a month, but they were not pursued. For a while after this, Yegan was accepted into the colony and was actually given permission to host a corroboree in Perth. You may remember that term from another Australia podcast. This was a traditional ceremony and dance conducted by the Noongar. The event was documented by the Perth Gazette, and they wrote that Yegan was a master of ceremonies and acquitted himself with infinite grace and dignity. This time of peace between Yegan, the Noongar people, and the settlers was not to continue for long, and there were a number of attacks committed by both the settlers and the Noongar. In April of 1833, a party of Noongar broke into a storeroom in Fremantle to steal flour and food and were shot at by the caretaker Peter Chidlow. Yegan's brother Dom Jum was shot and later died of his injuries in jail. Yegan was said to have vowed for vengeance for the death of his brother and a party of Noongar that was 50 to 60 strong ambushed a settler's provision cart and killed two settlers, John and Tom Velvet. Tribal law indicated that vengeance could be sought by killing only one person, so killing two settlers was seen as wrong. Some historians have stated that the Velvics were actually targeted because they had previously attacked and assaulted Aboriginals. For the killing of the brothers, the Lieutenant Governor Frederick Irwin declared Yegan, his father Midge Guru, and another tribal member Monday outlaws. There was a 20-pound ransom for the capture of Midge Guru and Monday and a 30-pound ransom dead or alive on Yegan. 
Midge Guru was captured and executed by firing squad after a very short trial, and Monday appealed his conviction. Yegan wasn't caught for two months, but he was eventually discovered by William and James Keats, who tried to convince Yegan to stay with them so avoid capture, but actually plan on killing Yegan for the reward. William Keats shot Yegan, and his brother shot another new guard named Hegan, who was trying to defend Yegan. James was able to escape, but William was killed. Settlers later came upon the three and found Hegan still alive, but badly injured. The settlers killed him. In order to claim the reward, the settlers cut off Yegan's head and skinned the part of his back that had tribal markings. They kept the skin as a trophy. James Keats did actually claim the reward, but his actions were widely criticized. In fact, the Perth Gazette referred to Yegan's killing as, quote, a wild and treacherous act. It is revolting to hear this lauded as a meritorious deed, end quote. It is said that Keats left the colony shortly thereafter, perhaps in fear of retaliation. In Jenny Lee's opinion, she doubts very much that the new gar would have allowed him to live. To add insult to injury, Yegan's head was preserved by smoking. Governor Irwin traveled to London with the head to give his own opinion of the events that led to the killings. While in London, the head changed hands a number of times and was known as an anthropological curiosity. Eventually, Yegan's head became part of Thomas Pettigrew's collection. Pettigrew was known for hosting house parties where he would dissect a number of Egyptian mummies. Wow, sounds like a great party. No kidding. Sounds like anybody who was friends with this guy was a little warped in the head. No kidding. Pettigrew had Yegan's head examined and a pamphlet about it made. He then had the head adorned with a feather headpiece made from the tail feather of a red-tailed black cockatoo. The head then came into the Liverpool Museum collection, although it was never on display. In 1964, the head was buried with that of a Maori head and a Peruvian mummy in Everton Cemetery. In 1980, the Noongar people began a petition for repatriation of Yegan's head. They stated, quote, It is an aboriginal belief that because Yegan's skeletal remains are incomplete, his spirit is earthbound. The uniting of his head and torso will immediately set his spirit free to continue its internal journey, end quote. The repatriation of the head took a number of years because of ongoing conflicts, as well as the issue that the rest of the body could not be found. Eventually, the head was reburied in a private ceremony attended only by Noongar elders on the 10th of July, 2010. The site that was chosen was believed to be near the rest of the body. The burial coincided with the opening of the Yegan Memorial Park. So it does make you wonder, since the head was supposed to be buried with the rest of the skeleton, and obviously they thought they buried it near, meaning they don't know where the rest of the body is, makes you wonder, is he still wandering around? Well, according to their belief, I would presume so. So that is the information about the Roundhouse. Interesting convicts they had there. Very much so. Now, the Roundhouse was not big enough, so they built another jail, and this is the Fremantle Prison, which is sometimes referred to as Fremantle Jail. It is a former Australian prison in Fremantle, Western Australia. The 6 hectare, which is 15-acre site, includes the prison cell blocks, gatehouse, perimeter walls, cottages, and tunnels. Initially known as the Convict Establishment or the Establishment, it was constructed with the use of convict labor between 1851 and 1859. The prison was transferred to the colonial government in 1886 to use for locally sentenced prisoners. Punishments varied over the years, with flogging and time and irons eventually replaced by lengthening of sentences and deprivation of visitors or entertainment. More than 40 hangings were carried out at Fremantle Prison which was Western Australia's only lawful place of execution between 1888 and 1984. Prominent escapees included Moondine Joe, as well as John Boyle O'Reilly and six other Fenians in the 19th century, and Brendan Abbott in 1989. 
There have been various riots and other disturbances throughout the prison's history, with major riots causing damage in 1968 and 1988. Since 1991, Fremantle Prison has been conserved as a recognized heritage site, and various restoration works have been undertaken. New uses have been found for some buildings within the prison, which has also become a significant tourist attraction. The process of obtaining World Heritage Listing as part of the Australian Convict Site Submission focused historical interpretation and conservation efforts on the prison's convict era 1850 to 1886, at the expense of its more recent history, including Aboriginal prisoners held there. Fremantle Prison was built on a land grant of about 36 acres from limestone quarried on site. Built from limestone. (laughs) I know, limestone, the great conductor of the paranormal. Indeed. A 15-foot tall boundary wall encloses the prison grounds with a gatehouse in the center of the western wall facing the terrace. Cottages, which house prison workers and officials, are located outside the wall on either side of the gatehouse. Inside the walls, the parade ground is located east of the gatehouse. Beyond it is the main cell block, which is at the center of the site and contains two chapels. North of the main block is New Division, and west of that, in the northwestern corner, is the former woman's prison, previously the cookhouse, bakehouse, and laundry. The hospital building stands in the northeastern corner, while the former workshops are located in the southeastern corner, as well as to the north of the gatehouse. A system of underground tunnels constructed to provide fresh water from an aquifer runs under the eastern edge of this site. So you have it built from limestone, and we have running water underneath it in tunnels. I mean, there's just a lot of conduction going on here. Fremantle Prison was partially used as a military prison during both world wars for the detention of military personnel, as well as an internment center. From 1940 until 1946, it was one of more than 50 military prisons across Australia, holding a combined total of more than 12,000 enemy aliens and prisoners of war. Fremantle accommodated up to 400 military prisoners and up to 160 civilian prisoners by October 1945. The World War II takeover necessitated the commissioning of Barton's Mill Prison in 1942. In the convict era, particularly during Hampton's term as governor, misbehaving prisoners were punished with flogging, solitary confinement, and working in chain gangs at gunpoint. Particularly difficult prisoners were put to work, hand-pumping groundwater into the prison's reservoir. Known as cranking, it was especially despised by the prisoners. Staff disliked giving the lashings. In 1851, out of a total of 400 lashings ordered, 150 were remitted as the superintendent could not find anyone to undertake the task. The role was so disliked that inducements were offered, including extra pay or improved lodgings. By the 1880s, punishments also included a restricted diet of bread and water for a short time span, time in irons, and a lengthening of a prisoner's sentence by a visiting magistrate. The cat o' nine tails, which had been used since the early days of the prison, was abolished during the post-1911 Royal Commission reforms. Flogging was discontinued in the 1940s, with the last incident occurring in 1943. From that decade, punishments were decided by the superintendent after hearing the case against a prisoner or by a magistrate for grievous violations. Lesser transgressions could result in solitary confinement or restriction from visitors, education, and concerts. Serious offenses were punishable by the cancellation of any remission earned and a bread-and-water diet, normally over a two-week period. As soon as Fremantle Prison came under local control in 1886, a refractory block with gallows was planned. 
It was completed in 1888 and first used in 1889 to execute a convicted murderer, Jimmy Long, a Malayan. The gallows room was the only lawful place of execution in Western Australia between 1888 and 1984. At least 43 men and one woman were hanged in this period. Martha Rendell was the only woman to be hanged at the prison in 1909. Her crimes were heinous. She killed three of her common-law husband's children. We'll discuss this further a little later. The last person to be hanged was serial killer Eric Edgar Cook, executed in 1964. He had committed a series of murders and attempted murders from 1959 to 1963 using both a gun and a knife. He was known as the Night Caller. His defense tried to claim he was schizophrenic, but the court wouldn't hear it. He did seem to have brain damage from abuse, and there have been several serial killers that had started their killing after having their brain damaged. Cook was 33 when he was hanged. When serial killers David and Catherine Burney were caught, there was outcry from the public to have them executed, but they were not. Their crimes are known as the Morehouse Murders because their house was on that street. They abducted five women, chained them to a bed, and David repeatedly raped them. A couple were taken to other locations and murdered, while a couple others were killed at the house. The couple was arrested after their final victim escaped. The Fremantle Jail actually had to build a room for David Burney in the public places of the prison, the dining area and laundry, etc., because the other inmates hated him so much and wanted him dead. From the day of sentencing to death, prisoners were kept in a concrete-floored cell in New Division. They were vigilantly observed to prevent them from committing suicide. That's always been the weirdest thing to me. It's like, you're on death row, we're going to kill you, but we don't want you to die before that. (laughs) They want to make sure they do it, I guess. I don't know. I would much rather let the prisoner off themselves. Yeah, it would be a lot less expensive, I would think. And a lot less guilt for whoever the executioners happen to be. With hangings taking place on Monday mornings at 8 a.m., condemned prisoners were woken three hours earlier and provided with the last meal, shower, and clean clothes. That just seems evil. Everybody hates Mondays as it is, and then 8 a.m., that would be like, I'm off to work. Can you imagine? Usually here in America, we do it at like midnight. Yeah, some weird time. But But I guess with this, you wake up and you don't have to fret about it all day. That is true, because that would be horrible all day just waiting for the end. I mean, that would just be Exactly. Afterward, they were handcuffed and moved to a holding or condemned cell near the gallows and allowed a couple of sips of brandy to calm their nerves. Shortly before 8 a.m., they were hooded, led up to the execution chamber that could hold as many as 11 witnesses, placed over the trap door with a noose put around their neck, and were hanged by dropping through the opening trap door. After medical examination, the deceased was removed for burial. Prisoners did manage to escape from Fremantle Jail. One of the most infamous prisoners of the jail was Moondine Joe, who was famous because he managed to escape from the prison a number of times. Moondine Joe was born Joseph Olitho Johns and is considered Western Australia's best-known bushranger. He was transported from England to Western Australia as a convict, his charge being thievery. He spent a number of years in jail in England first and was actually given ticket of leave once he landed in Western Australia for good behavior. This good behavior wouldn't last, though. In 1861, he found an unbranded horse and gave it his brand. This was considered stealing, and he was imprisoned in Tudier lockup. That night, he broke out and stole a horse along with the local magistrate's new bridle and saddle. He was caught the next day, but only received three years for escaping jail and not ten for stealing the horse. He killed the horse and cut off the brand, so there was no evidence. Joe was then convicted of killing a steer belonging to his boss, a crime for which he was found guilty and sentenced to ten years penal servitude. Joe always protested his innocence to this crime and was determined to not serve out a sentence for a crime he was adamant he didn't do. He escaped again while on a work party with another prisoner 
and they were on the run for a month. During this time, they committed a number of crimes, which added more time onto their sentences. After a failed attempt at escaping by breaking his door lock, he managed to escape once more with the idea to run off to South Australia. However, he was captured once again and had an additional five years attached to a sentence. This time, they were determined to not have him escape. They created a unique cell for him at Fremantle, which was considered escape-proof. The Stonewall cell was lined with Jara sleepers and over 1,000 nails and was almost airproof and lightproof. Moondine Joe was kept in the cell on a bread-and-water diet and only one to two hours of exercise a day. In early 1867, due to his diminishing health, Moondine Joe was set to work breaking stone in the open air, but rather than permit him to leave the prison, the acting comptroller general ordered that the stone be brought in and dumped in a corner of the prison yard, where Moondine Joe worked under the constant supervision of a warder. Governor John Hampton was so confident of the arrangements, he was heard to say to Moondine Joe, quote, If you get out again, I'll forgive you, end quote. The rock broken by Moondine Joe was not removed regularly, and eventually a pile grew up until it obscured the guard's view of him below the waist. Partially hidden from behind the pile of rocks, he occasionally swung his sledgehammer at the limestone wall of the prison. On the 7th of March, 1867, Moondine Joe escaped through a hole he had made on the prison wall. This guy was good at getting out. <laughs> Very mean, much. He's like the Houdini of prisoners. No kidding. Despite an extensive manhunt, no sign of him was found, and he would not be recaptured for nearly two years. He did not return to any of his old haunts, and he committed no crimes, so the authorities received very little information about him. Many convicts were encouraged by Moondine Joe's audacious escape, and a number of escapes were attempted in the following months, so that he was quickly forgotten. A few days before the second anniversary of his escape, Moondine Joe tried to steal some wine from the cellars at Houghton Winery. He just could not help himself. <laughs> I know. It's just like, just give it up and you might stay out <laughs> might of prison. Stay out. By chance, the owner had been helping with a police search and afterwards invited a group of police back to the vineyard for refreshments. When the owner entered the cellar, Moondine Joe assumed that he was discovered and made a dash for the door into the arms of the police. He was returned to prison and sentenced to an additional 12 months. On March 22, 1869, he was sentenced to an additional four years in irons for breaking and entering. Moondine Joe made at least one more attempt to escape in February of 1871. He created a key for his cell in the carpenter's workshop, but was unsuccessful. If nothing else, he had tenacity. Eventually, in April of 1871, Comptroller General Wakeford heard from Moondine Joe of Hampton's promise. After verifying that with Superintendent Lefroy that those words were spoken, Wakeford informed the current governor, Frederick Weld, of the promise, and it was agreed that further punishment would be unfair. Moondine Joe was given a ticket of leave in May of 1871. To this day, you can visit the cell while on tour. The room itself has a horrible feel, it would not have been a comfortable place to live. The room isn't considered haunted, but the vibe you get from it isn't pleasant. There's actually a pub in Fremantle named after Moondine, and also a number of books and songs named for him. And now we go to our third location. The Fremantle Arts Center is a multi-arts organization offering a program of exhibitions, residencies, art courses, and music in a historic building in the heart of Fremantle, Western Australia. The building was built under convict labor between 1861 and 1868 and was used as a psychiatric hospital initially called the Fremantle Lunatic Asylum. 
and later known as the Asylum for the Criminally Insane. The first mentally ill patients in Western Australia were cared for in temporary accommodations, including the wreck of the Marquis of Anglesey, the Roundhouse, and the Colonial Hospital until the asylum was built. When convict transportation began in 1850, the number of people with mental illnesses in the colony began to increase. Official care began with the transfer of 10 convicts from Perth Jail to a new asylum located in Scott's Warehouse at the corner of Croak and Cliff Streets in November of 1857. The imposing building on the 2.4 hectares, which is 5.9 acres, site overlooks the Harbor City and was the largest public building constructed by convicts in the state after the Fremantle Jail, which had been built in the 1850s. The design is of the colonial Gothic style and was by Lieutenant Colonel Sir Edmund Henderson, the Comptroller General of Convicts in Western Australia. It was built to accommodate 50 people. Construction began in 1861 under the supervision of James Manning, clerk of the works to the convict establishment and the 20th Company of Engineers. Oh my gosh, could you imagine putting that on a business card? (laughs) It's a good thing they didn't have those back then. (laughs) Holy cow, that's a long title. And he is the one who provided instruction and technical expertise to the convict laborers. The building took four years to complete. The first patients were brought into the asylum in July of 1865. You know, this building was imposing and took up 5.9 acres, and yet it was built for just 50 people. I guess they were giving them a lot of space to stretch out. Or there's really, really thick walls. In 1886, responsibility for public buildings shifted to the newly created Public Works Department under the Superintendent of Public Works, George Temple Poole. Poole was responsible for the design of the Northeast Wing facing Finnerty Street, which was completed in 1886, and the Southern Wings that were completed in 1890 and 1894, respectively. Following the gold rushes in the 1890s, the asylum became drastically overcrowded, forcing a reorganization of facilities, including the purchase of Whitby Falls as an asylum farm in 1897. Well, no wonder it became overcrowded since they only had room for 50. No kidding. The asylum continued to operate for its intended purpose through to the early 1900s when following two suspicious deaths, which provoked comment from the local press. The government set up an inquiry which concluded with a recommendation that the building, quote, be demolished as unfit for purpose for which it is now used, end quote. Patients were then moved to alternate locations in the metropolitan area between 1901 and 1909 including the newly constructed Claremont Hospital for the Insane. The building was used shortly thereafter for housing for homeless women and later as a midwifery school. Until World War II, it was known as the Old Woman's Home. During World War II, it became the headquarters for the American Armed Services based in Western Australia, who built the Asbestos Clad Laundry Building to the northeast corner of the site. All three locations are quite haunted. One of the inmates who said to haunt the Fremantle prison is the only woman executed at the prison, Martha Rendell. This woman makes the evil stepmothers of Disney look sweet and caring. And that takes some doing, because some of those stepmothers are pretty bad. I know, but they're kind of fun at 1900 Park Fair with Lady (laughs) Tremaine. She was convicted of murdering her de facto husband's son, Arthur Morris, in 1908. She was also suspected of killing his two daughters, Annie and Olive, by swabbing their throats with hydrochloric acid. Oh my goodness, can... Mm-mm. Not even. Although the children died slow and agonizing deaths, they had been treated by a number of doctors during their illness, only one of whom expressed any doubts about their deaths. Rendell brutally abused Morris's children, once beating Annie so brutally that she could not walk. Arresting Officer Inspector Harry Mann said, quote, She delighted in seeing her victims writhe in agony and from it derive sexual satisfaction. End quote. 
Rendell killed seven-year-old Annie first. Her method was to put something in the child's food that would result in a sore throat. It was alleged that she killed the children by swabbing hydrochloric acid on the backs of their throats, claiming it was medicine. This would inflame the throat until the child could no longer eat and thus would starve to death. Annie died on the 28th of July in 1907. Dr. Cuthbert issued a certificate stating the cause of death was diphtheria. After killing Annie, she turned her attention on Olive, aged five. Olive died on the 6th of October in 1907. And again, Cuthbert issued a certificate stating the cause of death was diphtheria. In the winter of 1908, Rendell tried the same method on Arthur, the third son and youngest child still alive. Arthur, who was 14, took longer to succumb to the treatment, finally dying on October 6, 1908. Cuthbert asked permission for an autopsy. Rendell said she wanted to be present during the investigation. She stood by as the autopsy was performed and the doctors found nothing to incriminate her. You know, part of it is back in those days, though, people, it was not uncommon to have several children die. So Exactly, and you wouldn't think that the stepmother would kill these kids. I know, especially in such a horrific way. Mm -hmm. In April 1909, she turned her attention to the second son, George. It didn't take long for the second son to complain of a sore throat after drinking a cup of tea. Rindle coated his tonsils with the syrup frightening the boy who ran to his mother's place some streets away. Neighbors would inquire as to the boy's whereabouts. However, his father, Thomas Morris, would state that he did not know. Neighbors went to the police and Inspector Harry Mann conducted inquiries. Mann heard repeated references to the children having their throats painted and Rindle's apparent indifference to their pain. One neighbor claimed that he often peeked in the window to see Rendell standing in front of the screaming victim, rocking back and forth as if in ecstasy. Men located George Morris, who had claimed to have run away because his stepmother had killed his siblings and was trying to poison him with spirits of salts, i.e. hydrochloric acid. Nobody at the time knew what spirits of salt could do, so experiments were conducted on animals. The children were exhumed and autopsies revealed the kids had the same problems as the animals. Rindle showed no remorse and gave no motive. Rindle and Thomas Morris were both charged with murder, the former being sentenced to death by hanging. Rindle protested her innocence, maintaining that she was treating the children for diphtheria. Although Thomas Morris was also charged with the murders, he was acquitted. It was believed that although he had purchased spirits of salt, he had not been aware of the crimes until after the children's deaths. The jury wanted to find him guilty of being an accessory after the fact, but this was not allowed. Rendell's crimes aroused considerable public outrage at the time. The press portrayed her as a scarlet woman and wicked stepmother. She was hanged at Fremantle Prison on the 6th of October, 1909. She is buried at Fremantle Cemetery in the same grave where serial killer Eric Edgar Cook was interred more than half a century afterwards. Martha Rendell was the last woman executed in the state of Western Australia. An illusion appears on one of the prison windows, which can only be seen on the outside of the window. From inside, the glass is smooth and even with no unusual shape or texture. Urban legend has it that this illusion is the portrait of Rendell, who watches over the prison. ABC in Perth, Australia reported, quote, Two separate pairs of women gave independent descriptions of what they felt when inside a cell that was used to isolate one of the sexual offenders imprisoned at Fremantle. Pressure, like it was warm and surrounded you, one describes before her friend adds, it was like a steam cloud condensing in on me. A third recount, she felt a feeling of cloudiness, and Helen felt that she was being dragged down to the bed, end quote. Jenny Lee used to run tours of the cemetery, and she says it's very haunted. 
The gravesite of Rendell and Cook is very creepy, and she had an experience there. She says, quote, I was walking back from the site and I heard some humming. I looked around making sure there was no one around and I saw a light on top of the site and it moved across over other graves and then out of sight. It wasn't a light like a reflection. It was more of an orb, but it was purplish color. The fact that I heard humming is what makes me think it's related to Rendell as she was reported to hum and sing to herself in the hours before she was executed. It was definitely one of the more creepy experiences, end quote. The gallows where Rendell and the others were executed is not a place for the sensitive. The bars on the windows were made from iron and aren't just there to prevent prisoners from escaping, but also to stop evil spirits from escaping. Jenny Lee said, quote, While there on tour in middle school, I found it very hard to be in this room and ended up waiting outside by myself instead of going in. A friend of mine said that she felt someone touching her when they went down the stairs and looked up through the dead man's trapdoor of the gallows. I considered this just her overactive imagination, but years later I learned while on tour that women would often be touched in this part of the gallows, end quote. Others have heard the tinkling of keys on a ring and the sounds of a scuffle near the gallows. People often talk about being touched and poked in the prison. It's not unusual to see shadows and hear footsteps. In fact, one of the stories they tell on the tour is about a guard, when the prison was still in use, who heard footsteps walking along the second-story pathway. He waited for the person to come into the guardhouse, as that was the only place he could come. After a few moments, the guard opened the door to check, only to find no one there. If the person had gone back down, he would have heard him on the staircase, but he hadn't. Apparently, this guard didn't stay working in that prison for long and opted to be transferred. And who would blame him? <laughs> Not I. As would be expected based on previous episodes dealing with asylums, the former Lunacy Asylum is very haunted. American soldiers who were staying there would often tell stories about a phantom kisser who would kiss their necks and cheeks. They also spoke of disembodied voices and footsteps, as well as doors opening on their own. There was a lady who was sent to the asylum by her husband. Their daughter had been kidnapped and was believed dead, and she was never found. The woman was said to have gone insane because of the grief. She is thought to haunt the staircase of the building. Women and teenage girls are said to have their skirts pulled as well as their hair. Apparently, she has a thing for redheads and she likes to touch them. Some people who work at the building now claim that they have heard a woman singing. Ghost Hunters and a Psychic did an investigation, which you can watch on YouTube, and did get some EVPs which said, quote, those are chains, when the investigator stood next to a cabinet which had leg chains from the convict era. Anthony Gazella, who is known as the Australian Ghost Whisperer, saw a full-length apparition while he was conducting this investigation. Anthony said that the ghost wasn't an inmate, but a warden or a nurse, who wasn't very nice. Anthony said he made him feel ill and at unease. Perhaps this was one of the men who was charged with abusing the inmates in the early 20th century, shortly before it was forced closed. Anthony later learned that the security guards did not like to visit this part of the building as a few guards were pushed down the staircase. The building also had a number of phantom smells. One lady smelt lavender and another a sweet lemon smell, while some people, including Anthony and Jenny Lee, smelled burning hair and meat. Eww, I can't even imagine. How disgusting. Exactly. I would much rather smell lavender. Well, there's a reason why there was that burning hair smell and meat. And I'm thinking it's more like human meat. Because Jenny Lee said, quote, when I asked the tour guide what the smell was, he said that some people pick up on the smell of the electric shock treatment done on site. Ooh. I was actually annoyed at this. I would much rather have smelled the lavender, end quote. 
I don't blame her. I don't either. Hauntings at the Roundhouse tend to focus on an unknown woman who is said to have been assaulted at the jail. The room that she is said to have been assaulted in is the room where a number of people are said to be overcome with sad or uneasy feeling. There are also a number of windows in the upstairs of the Roundhouse, all of which are covered with spider webs except one. Tour guides tell of a family who lived at the Roundhouse in the 1890s. They supposedly had a child who liked to keep the windows clean. Jenny Lee said that before she became a tour guide, she visited the Roundhouse with her father and younger brother. She said, quote, I couldn't shake the feeling that someone was watching me from the windows. I was actually so freaked out that I made my brother come outside with me. It wasn't until years later that I found out the story, and I wish I knew which window it was that had freaked me out so, end quote. Another haunting centers around the young boy mentioned earlier who'd been executed here. He is said to haunt the shipwreck gallery rather than the roundhouse. The shipwreck gallery is a museum and is less than 200 meters from the roundhouse, and it is said to be built on top of the boy's unmarked grave. It is thought that John Gavin was actually innocent of his crime. There is some evidence that the mother of the murdered boy suffered from postpartum depression, so they might have executed that 15-year-old boy and he was innocent. Which has happened many, many times. Workers at the museum are said to hear footsteps and other strange noises, including crying and groaning. Although this might also be because of the skeleton they have on display, which is the remains of a man said to be from the mutiny of a ship off the coast. The tunnels underneath the roundhouse created by whalers in the 1800s are also said to be haunted, and you can take tours of those tunnels. That one I think I might want to do in definite daylight. That would be freaky. Fremantle has a deep history, and although convicts were not supposed to be part of that history, they certainly did become part of that history. Have some of them decided to stay on in the afterlife? Have spirits of those locked up in the asylum decided to stay? Are the Roundhouse, Fremantle Jail, and the Fremantle Lunatic Asylum haunted? That is for you to decide. There's a lot of strange stuff going on there, and a lot of it is personal impressions from Jenny Lee Watts herself, which thank you so much for all of the wonderful information that you shared here with us. Yes, thank you so much, Jenny Lee. Fremantle Tram Ghost Tours are offered if you are in that area and you would like to take a ghost tour. And we have the links to that up in the show notes for this episode. Our next episode, we will be featuring another prison back here in America, Eastern State Penitentiary. I think a lot of people have probably heard of this location, so we're looking forward to bringing that to you. Want to share some reviews that we've gotten over at iTunes? We start off with Nikki Champ. I love the show Five Stars. This podcast is one of my favorites. I'm playing catch up from the beginning and love it. I'm addicted to history and I love the paranormal and this is the best of both worlds for me. I cannot wait till I'm all caught up as this makes my day fly by. I love the banter between the two hosts and they let you decide and don't try to sway your mind whether something is haunted or not. Well, thanks so much, Nikki. We appreciate that. Anita what? It's addicting. Five stars. I've been listening to this podcast for over a month. The history and the paranormal are both two of my favorite hobbies. And in my personal opinion, I think they have a perfect mix of both. It's not your typical scary storytelling ambient. And it's more of a group of friends telling you the facts and the fiction and letting you decide whether it's haunted or not. They truly are a subject of admiration. With that said, I highly recommend this podcast. It only takes one episode to get hooked. Well, thanks so much, Anita. We appreciate that. And Jess Harris, 18. Love this podcast. Five stars. You guys are awesome. This podcast is the perfect mix of history and paranormal. I'm hooked. Would love to hear something from Maryland or Virginia. And as we heard earlier, we had a suggestion from Maryland, so that will be coming, Jess. Thanks for your comments there. Absolutely. 
And then we got another one from Canada. Oh, Canada. This is Tihana816. Five stars. Love HGB. This is a great podcast and everyone should give it a listen. You learn about the history of locations around the world and the spooky events that go on there. There are little segments that lead up to the main topic, which are also neat to hear. Diane and Denise are delightful and keep me laughing. I personally like the chit chat. You get to know your hosts a little better. Keep up the great work, ladies. Your time and effort is appreciated. Well, thanks, Tiana. We love that comment. Yes, we do. And the fact that your name is so similar to our little white fuzzball. Also known as one of our furry producers. And then, of course, since we went to Australia, why not have another review from Australia? This comes in from RJWF. Five stars. Well, well. And when I read that, I'm you thinking one of more. Angelina Jolie from <laughs> Maleficent. Well, well, well. What do we have here? <laughs> I don't usually like podcasts like this, so happy to hear it. I like history and I like creepy and weird history, but I'm not a big paranormal person. It's not that I don't believe or that I do believe. It's just that I don't care for other people's ghost stories. This ties in so nicely to history, though, and that's great. The sound quality is pretty awesome, which is great. The commentators are pretty good. So, yeah, ghost history, pretty decent. Well, thanks, RJWF, for that. We want to thank all of you for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We want to welcome new executive producer, Ken Arnold. Thanks. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump. Listen, the M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time. <laughs> <laughs>